Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest today is John Hudak, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Deputy Director of the Center for Effective Public Management. He's also a longtime contributor to this podcast and his regular What's Happening in Congress and What's Happening in the Election segments. Today, I'll have a full interview with John about what's happening in the 2016 election. Also, stay tuned for my discussion about public-private partnerships with a leading expert on the topic. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. So barring something totally unexpected, are there any plausible scenarios that will now prevent Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton from becoming the nominees of their parties? There really isn't. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton will be the nominees. I think the only chances of something happening, barring barring something tragic, of course, uh, would be possibly a Clinton indictment, which I think is fairly unlikely, or Donald Trump finally crossing such a line that the Republican Party steps in, changes the rules on the first day of the convention, and makes it so they have the opportunity to have a different nominee. Um, that would be politically devastating for the GOP, um, perhaps just as devastating as some of them think having Donald Trump as the nominee would be, and uh, it would be unprecedented in the history of, of uh, modern party politics. Okay. This week, uh, we saw the final primary of the primary caucus season uh, here in Washington, D.C. There was, as there always is, a lot of grumbling about the primary and caucus process, especially on the Democratic side. Do you think the primary process worked as intended? Well, I think depending on who you voted for, you think that the primary process worked great or that it was a a devastating uh, source of corruption and, and something that needs fixing. If you look out at the landscape, a year ago, we expected Hillary Clinton to be the nominee. Um, Hillary Clinton raised a lot of money. Uh, She ran a a technically good campaign, one that had a good ground game, had good advertising, uh, stayed on message, which is something that the Clinton campaign had party officials a bit worried about at times. And at the end, she was the nominee. And so from that perspective, it, it worked pretty well. I think for Sanders supporters, uh, they look at this as uh, the reason he is not the nominee is because of some of the party rules that were in place. Of course, those party rules were in place long before uh, the campaign got started. And so uh, can there be fixes to make the nomination process better? Certainly. Did the party rules determine the outcome in this race? Absolutely not. One of those rules, uh, as I understand it, is that Sanders supporters would say non-registered Democrats should have been allowed to vote in some of the primaries. Is that a kind of reform that that a party would want to make? Well, not necessarily. A party wants its partisans to make its choices, I think, for the most part. Voters have opportunities to register for a party if they want to vote in the party's primaries. And those rules are different from state to state, for sure. But at the end of the day, uh, Democrats have an interest in advancing Democratic ideals. And the people who hold those ideals most are Democrats. Now, that said, I think there's been a lot of grumbling about that open primaries would resolve some of the problems that have existed in this race. But it's important to remember Hillary Clinton did win uh, several open primaries in this race. It's not as if her success only occurred when Democrats only could vote. Now, we always talk about the the two major political parties, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, uh, but there are lots of other parties that field presidential candidates, and, and one of the um, the strongest right now is the Libertarian Party. So let's talk about that for just a second. Uh, former Governors Gary Johnson and Bill Weld are the ticket for the Libertarian Party. How does their bid as a third party 
compare to previous third-party bids that you've seen? Well, previous third-party bids tend to be people who are seen mostly on the fringe. They're either uh, third-party activists, they are activists in some other right, they are wealthy individuals like Ross Perot was in uh, in his two bids for the presidency. Uh, they are not always seen as really politically professional individuals, individuals who are talented enough to win campaigns. But in this case, you have two former governors for the libertarian ticket. And so we have people who have proven that they can win campaigns. They are politicians. They understand how the process works. They understand what it takes to uh, run a campaign. And so in that sense, you actually have a very talented uh, pair of running mates atop a party that normally doesn't field people that talented. Now, a key process issue that, that has to work on their behalf is to gain ballot access in all 50 states. Do, does the Libertarian Party have ballot access across the land? Uh, not yet, but it is increasingly looking like they will. Ballot access laws across the United States vary. Like most aspects of American elections, states determine those things for themselves. In some states, you need to collect a certain number of signatures, either based on the last gubernatorial election or the last presidential election in terms of how many people voted, and then needing a certain percentage of those uh, that number in, in signatures. In other states, past performance by a party can help. So if the Libertarian Party did exceptionally well in the previous uh, gubernatorial race or in the previous presidential race, uh, they have access to the ballot in those states. Uh, right now, uh, they do not, the Libertarian Party does not not have access in all 50 states, though they have access in most. Um, there is a lawsuit in Ohio going on right now uh, that is challenging whether uh, they'll have access. And Oklahoma, for instance, just recently granted access to the Libertarian Party, as did Wisconsin. Uh, so let's move on to the vice presidential pick um, of the other two candidates. Um, Gary Johnson picked Bill Weld to be his vice presidential running mate. What sort of qualities will Trump and Clinton be looking for in their vice presidential picks. We've always thought, at least in the past, maybe this is archaic, that the top of the ticket is going to pick somebody from a different region of the country to kind of achieve a, a sectional balance. Is that kind of an archaic notion now? It's, it's a little bit of an archaic uh, notion. There were previous periods of time where parties were divided uh, by north and south or, or uh, divisions to the west. And so what presidential candidates wanted to do was appeal to those uh, other voters. So if you, are a if you are a Republican from the west, let's say, or the Midwest, you might want to pick pick a Northeastern Republican. Or if you're a Democrat from the North, you might pick a Democrat from the South to try to balance the ticket. Um, that type of sectionalism is largely passed. And so what candidates tend to do is pick someone who balances their strengths and weaknesses. So if you're a foreign policy-minded president, you don't want a foreign policy-minded vice president. A good example of this was in 2000. George W. Bush was an American governor. He didn't have much foreign policy experience. So who did he pick? A former Secretary of Defense uh, to uh, balance out that weak, that perceived weakness on his ticket. So for Clinton and, and um, Trump, Trump needs to find someone with a lot of government experience, someone who has run elections before, someone who has operated in government before, whether it's a governor or a longtime senator. Uh, for Clinton, she's someone who interestingly has a lot of domestic and a lot of 
foreign policy experience. So you're going to see her uh, look towards someone who has more of an ideological balance to the ticket, someone who is perceived as more progressive than her, perhaps someone who's a bit younger than her. Uh, that uh, Youth would also be something beneficial uh, for Mr. Trump as well. Um, and so the idea then is to balance the optics and the experience of, of the ticket rather than the geography. I know it's early yet, but would you care to offer any uh, predictions, at least to the short list that each each uh, candidate might choose. So Clinton's short list is going to involve um, a variety of individuals. I think Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, her stock has risen uh, quite dramatically over the past several weeks as she's shown herself to be an attack dog, something that most presidential candidates really want in a vice presidential candidate, someone who can go out and land some attacks. Senator Kane from Virginia, um, Secretary Castro, um, they would be ideal candidates um, as well. They are progressive, uh, some more than others. Uh, they also uh, are younger uh, than Secretary Clinton, filling key constituencies, whether they are state-based or um, ethnically based. I think Senator Brown uh, from Ohio would be an interesting pick. He comes from a swing state. He's one of the most progressive senators in the U.S. Um, and then you you hear some dark horse candidates like uh, Senator Franken from Minnesota is someone who might be interesting. Secretary Perez um, might be interesting as well. But at the end of the day, uh, again, Clinton is trying to uh, balance a lot of things on her ticket, and she has a lot of people to choose from. For, for Mr. Trump, it's a little bit different. Uh, Trump has a lot of individuals who would make great vice presidents. The the bench of the Republican Party is very deep, um, full of very talented conservatives who have been successful either in Congress or, or at the state level or both. Um, the problem is there aren't many people who want to attach themselves to the Trump campaign. And each passing day um, that Mr. Trump says something that is outrageous, that the party needs to distance themselves from, uh, makes it less and less likely that he'll have an easy time finding someone who will say yes. Um, the shortlist for him uh, probably includes a Governor Chris of New Jersey, uh, Governor Fallon of Oklahoma, uh, Senator Sessions from Alabama, people who have come out and supported him uh, early, and people who, again, have that governance experience that he really needs. But his short list will be very short. My guess is his long list will be very short as well. Um, let's talk about campaign organization. It's said that Donald Trump has a much smaller campaign staff, a much smaller paid staff than Hillary Clinton does that maybe his campaign's voter targeting isn't as strong as the Democrats' voter targeting, and also that he might not be as well-funded, surprisingly. How important are these on-the-ground mechanics to a presidential campaign? On-the-ground mechanics are essential to a campaign. Getting your voters to the polls, particularly in key states, is is so critical. Uh, advertising helps. Uh, obviously, fundraising outreach helps. But having a data... Um, a, a data organization and strategy in place that targets voters, make sure they know where they're supposed to vote, when they're supposed to vote, and making sure that they actually get to the polls is a, a huge part of, of any operation. It's important to remember that a presidential election in the United States is not a national election. It's 51 individual state and D.C.-based uh, races. And because of that, these campaigns need strong operations in each state. If you're running a, a hell of a campaign in New Hampshire, it doesn't mean you're going to win Ohio. And so these differences between the campaigns right now are 
stark, and they are very problematic for Republicans. By uh, one count I saw, uh, Clinton has as many as 10 times the number of paid staffers as the Trump campaign does. That is tremendous, and that number will only increase for Clinton. Uh, Trump needs to start hiring people who can get into the states and set up operations. By another count, the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee have 200 million more dollars right now than the Trump campaign does. That type of spending is going to be huge both for advertising, but also for the ability to hire and to coordinate at the state level. So right now, uh, Trump is in a really serious financial position in a really serious organizational position. And I think for someone who touts his management abilities and his ability to grow wealth, it is a bit ironic that he's poor and disorganized and lacks the staff he needs to run an effective presidential campaign. In future episodes of this podcast, uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about the presidential campaign. I want to switch over to the, uh, the Congress right now. Um, a lot of eyes are on the Senate and the House, especially the Senate. Um, on the Senate side, what are the most competitive races that you'll be watching? There are a lot of uh, competitive Senate races this year, and, and there's uh, an important reason for that. The senators who were up for re-election this year, the seats that are up for re-election this year, uh, were last voted on during the Tea Party wave of 2010. Uh, during that time, several traditionally Democratic states or swing states uh, elected very conservative Republican senators because that was the mood of the nation at that time. Like it Illinois, was, Wisconsin. Yeah, Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, to a lesser extent, Ohio. And so those are states that uh, maybe elected a Republican then that aren't going to elect a Republican in a presidential year, particularly with a weak front runner. So yeah, looking at New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, New Hampshire, those are all very vulnerable Republican states. Um, and for Democrats, they have competitive races in Colorado, where the incumbent Senator Bennett is uh, perceived as being maybe Republicans' top target, and then the open seat in Nevada being vacated by uh, minority leader Harry Reid is seen as a bit competitive, although um, in Tuesday's primary, uh, the the best uh, candidate Democrats could ask for won the primary race. And so that probably makes that race a little bit less competitive. And the, uh, as I understand it, the Republicans are defending many more seats than Democrats. There's what, 33 or 34 Senate seats under contest. Yeah, and most of them are Republican held, again, because of the Tea Party wave in 2010 uh, and Republicans' tremendous success that year in the Senate. Uh, they are on the defensive quite a bit. And if a Democrat is elected president, um, you only need three seats to switch um, in order for Democrats to have the 50-50 tie that the vice president then breaks to have a majority. Do you think that's plausible in this particular election? It is tremendously likely that Democrats retake the Senate. And is that because of the effect of the top of the Republican ticket or because of other dynamics? It's the combination of the two. The weak front runner is going to hurt um, down, down ballot uh, Republicans. I, I think there are going to be plenty of Republicans who perhaps don't want to vote for Trump and vote for a libertarian or maybe vote for Clinton or leave the presidential slot blank, which is, is quite uncommon, and then vote for their Republican senator. But I think if Trump does too much damage to the Republican brand during this campaign. It's going to be hard for people to vote for the Republican for president and then hard also to vote for their senator too. 
So over on the House of Representatives side, uh, nearly all of the incumbents who have faced a primary have won. I think three uh, have lost their primary races. Um, the re-election rate for the House of Representatives tends to be around 90 percent. You know, it goes up and down. What are the chances of House control shifting this year to the, from Republicans to Democrats? Yeah, House races tend to be much safer than, than Senate races. Gerrymandering helps that, of course. Um, this year, it is going to be a heavy lift for Democrats to retake the House. Um, 30 seats would have to switch uh, from Republican control to Democratic control. A net of 30 seats would have to switch um, in order for Democrats to have um, a majority in the House. That's that's a lot, even in a year with Trump at the top of the ticket and um, some House seats that are seen as vulnerable. Uh, but even with uh, Republicans' likelihood of keeping the House – they are also likely to lose a number of seats. And so if they lose 10 or or 12 or 15 seats, it means that they are going to have a governing majority that is smaller. We've already seen Speaker Boehner and now Speaker Ryan having a tough time with the Republican conference in the House, getting legislation passed, getting to agree on a lot of things. Um, In fact, it's been quite difficult even to elect a speaker. And so if the Republican conference shrinks by a significant number – but Republicans remain in the majority, uh, it's only going to make governance of that institution all that much harder. So even keeping the majority might open up a a variety of headaches for Republicans. So here's a question that I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, You hear about it, at least in past cycles, this idea of the undecided voter, somebody who doesn't make up their mind maybe until the last week, the last day of an election. Uh, do you think that's a, a real thing? And, and do you think that's a phenomenon that's going to play out here in 2016, the undecided voter? So the undecided voter is is definitely a real thing. Um, I think there are two types of undecided voters. Uh, one is the person who can't decide between a de- the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee. This year, it might be between the Democrat, the Republican, and the Libertarian. But I think increasingly the undecided voter is someone who decides whether or not to vote. Uh, And that choice to vote or not to vote can have pretty significant impacts on on these races as much as uh, the individual who picks between the candidates. I think there's less of an opportunity to find the, the first type of undecided voter, the one picking between the candidates, for a few reasons. First, uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are known quantities. Um, they are very polarizing individuals. Uh, people either te- t- uh, tend to love or hate um, each of them. And so uh, in past cycles, I think people have uh, had less passionate views about both candidates and have had an, had perhaps a tougher time figuring out who they want to vote for. I think Clinton and Trump make that decision uh, quite easy. That said, the high unfavorability ratings of both candidates might make it so there is an increase in the second type of undecided voter, the people who either go out and vote or stay home. Some people may like neither candidate and they're going to hold their nose and pick one of them. Others, they're not going to have the um, ability to hold their nose, and they're just going to stay home and, and watch the results. Let's wrap up, John, with the, this kind of meta question, um, because we're really focused on policy issues here at the Brookings Institution. What do you think voters should be paying attention to in terms of policy issues that isn't yet getting enough attention in these campaigns? Well, that's a tough question because I think policy itself is what's not getting enough of attention in these campaigns. Uh, uh, Clinton has talked a lot more about policy, I I think, than than Trump has. There were many other Republican 
candidates running for the nomination who talked about policy more substantively than Trump has. Uh, but it's not something that is a sexy issue. It's not something that people really want to hear about. They're more interested in the horse race or, in this case, the, the, the fighting that's going on. Uh, but what Americans need to do is they need to take a step back and think about the issues that matter most for them. For some people, it's either being unemployed or underemployed. Uh, for some people, it's nervousness about what's going to happen in the stock market as they're facing retirement. For some people, it's the cost of education, for higher education. Um, for some people, it's going to be the threat of terrorism or defense issues. You have to think a lot about what those issues, uh, what issues matter for you, and really hold the candidates accountable as much as possible. Uh, when you have an opportunity to voice your opinion, to send questions in for a debate, uh, to talk to media as much as those opportunities arise, uh, whether it's writing a letter to the editor or or in whatever setting. Uh, Really ask media to uh, be tough on the candidates. Find out what their positions are. Not talking points, not uh, vague discussions of it, but real true engagements of the issues that matter most to you. What we saw in the primary race was a media that was very willing to talk about things that didn't matter at all. And when issues did matter, they didn't hold the candidates accountable enough. And so I think listening closely, going to websites, um, and really trying to find out all you can about these candidates is very important because the choice is a stark one. Donald Trump's America will look very different from Hillary Clinton's America. And so for voters, they really need to get it right. Well, I'll observe for uh, listeners of this podcast that there are a lot of places to get horse race kind of coverage. Um, this podcast is not going to be one of those. I look forward to continuing conversation with you and with other scholars at Brookings about some of these fundamental dynamics of politics and governance. I'll also draw listeners' attention to um, the FixGov blog uh, that you, you're the managing editor of, um, Democracy Dashboard, um, also still Elaine K. Mark's Primary Politics, um, some of these resources on the Brookings Institution's website. John, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you can find John and his research on our website at brookings.edu slash effective public management. The project on 21st century city governance here at Brookings explores solutions for successful urban governance in today's complex world. Here's an excerpt of a conversation I had with Teresa Terminassian, an expert on public-private partnerships, on how PPPs can help cities navigate these complex realities. So you've mentioned um, issues like quality of life, jobs, security, reducing disparities. Mm -hmm. These are issues that um, we've often thought of national governments mm -hmm. as being in charge of, if you will. Um, so why are cities uh, now uh, facing these kinds of issues? And what other kinds of issues are cities being called upon uh, that they haven't been called upon to deal with in past times? Well, to answer this question, I think you need to put it in perspective of the trend that is really uh, very obvious worldwide uh, about uh, urbanization. Uh, urbanization is uh, uh, something that is taking place in all parts of the world, uh, not just in uh, uh, developing countries where it's very obvious, but even in uh, uh, some advanced countries. Th this movement has spurred the, the growth of uh, medium-sized cities and especially of the large metropolitan areas because uh, especially young people see metropolitan areas as hubs of jo job opportunities and also providers of better public services, cultural uh, and recreation opportunities. 
at the same time, the, the population of the small and uh, rural communities, the towns and villages, has been dwindling. And, and also its age structure has, has been deteriorating because the younger generations are migrating to cities. These trends in, uh, create uh, important new challenges for uh, uh, local governments. For, on the one hand, the rural communities uh, are losing the critical mass that is necessary to deliver efficiently essential public, uh, public services like water, sanitation, uh, energy, lo local transport, etc. And, and therefore, they need to be merged, which is also always politically difficult, or at least to create consortia to deliver these, these services together. Right, when you have cities that cross... Uh, multiple jurisdictions, county lines, even state lines, right. and cities are a conglomeration right. of a lot uh, of smaller uh, jurisdictions. Exactly. Now, in the, uh, in the large metropolitan areas, uh, the, the municipalities that various municipalities, and by this I mean various types of local governments, they can be cities, they can be counties, they can be uh, other denomination depending on the spe specific in, uh, institutional structure of, of the country, they uh, also need to put in place mechanism of cooperation uh, in providing the services for which they are responsible. And uh, this mechanism of cooperation uh, range from some quite informal ones, which have problems because normally they're not very effective and uh, uh, they not, do not allow exploitation of economies of scale and also resolution of conflicts when the actions of one jurisdiction spill adversely onto the other. Uh, but uh, there are also specific purpose functional consortia, for example, uh, to deliver water uh, services or sanitation services throughout the community or to ensure efficient local transport for the whole area. Uh, and finally, there are in, in some areas, for example, example in, in one typical example is that of Tokyo, uh, where there is a one area-wide government that overlays the municipal ones. Now, both uh, the medium and the larger cities have uh, uh, seen in the last um, couple of de few decades a trend in growth of uh, the, the scope of their spending responsibilities. Now, the degree of devolution of uh, spending responsibilities varies a lot across countries. This is documented, for instance, in, in my paper. However, in most countries, uh, the traditional services, uh, which are sanitation, street lighting, uh, local road, roadways and transport, local planning and zoning, uh, and in some countries, primary education and primary health care provision, have been now, are now increasingly being accompanied by such newer functions as urban economic development, which I mentioned already before, protection of the environment, higher education uh, and hospital care, social assistance, and uh, the, the rehabilitation of historical uh, um, city centers. Let's turn our attention to one of those areas of responsibilities that you focus on in the paper, and that is what we call public-private partnerships. Can you first of all define what public-private partnership is in the city context? Yeah. Well, there are many forms of uh, cooperation between uh, public and private entities in, in a city context. For example, there is maybe the co-financing of specific 
spending programs or, or specific events even. Uh, it could be, for example, the Olympics in, uh, or, or uh, a major sports events or major conventions, etc. There can be joint ventures between uh, enterprises, uh, public enterprises owned by the city and uh, private enterprises on an ongoing basis. Or maybe even one could call under public-private partnership uh, various fora for dialogue with uh, the civil society. But, but the most typical form of uh, PPP, and the one that we would like to discuss here, is a financial arrangement between a city government and one or more, typically a consortium, of private enterprises to build and operate public infrastructure. Sure. So as we wind up the conversation, mm -hmm. Teresa, can you maybe give an example of a uh, successful PPP yeah. and maybe one that hasn't been yeah. successful? Well, unfortunately, there are many more examples of PPPs with problems uh, than of very of fully successful PPPs. And that's because, as I said at the beginning, there are many de demanding preconditions for the effectiveness and the success of the PPPs. I would say among the best examples that I am familiar with are uh, one is the Chile highways, uh, PPP, um, um, PPPs on Chile highways, uh, which uh, were uh, um, which were used pr primarily during the 2000 to improve the uh, via the sort of in, I say connectedness of uh, uh, a country that, as you know, is very long and extended. Uh, um, Narrow and long, <laughs> and therefore it needs uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, sort of roads to, uh, through, uh, to to link the north to the south. The, uh, Chile used uh, um, a state of the arts, uh, really, uh, with the support from the World Bank, um, techniques in assessing the risk of uh, risks of these PPPs, and also uh, utilized an interesting mechanism whereby. If the traffic uh, exceeded the projection, the state would benefit, not, uh, would share in the, in the uh, upside, so to speak, uh, of, of the profits from, uh, of the revenues from the PPP, from the tolls for this PPP. These were all fully uh, toll uh, highways. Another uh, good example uh, is not one particular PPP, but there are many that have been constructed, is by U the UK. UK really pioneered uh, PPPs with, they call it the private finance initiative, and they have uh, uh, created a very strong infra institutional infrastructure to um, uh, manage, uh, uh, well, to design, select, uh, and then manage uh, PPPs. And they have a, a specialized agency, Partnership UK, which advises uh, not only the central government, but also the local governments um, in... Um, to, to design sound, uh, sound PPPs. 
Uh, among the not so good examples, I would quote a couple from uh, the, uh, the emerging markets and a couple from uh, more developed countries. Uh, a bad example was the Mexican highway projects in the early 90s, which uh, uh, where they had a series of um, uh, bankruptcies of the uh, private partners, which required uh, government bailouts and so uh, increased the, the public debt. And uh, the special purpose vehicles of uh, the Chinese uh, um, regions and large cities, uh, some of which uh, have, um, uh, in the end, uh, had to be bailed out by the, the central government. On the, uh, among the um, uh, adva adva more advanced countries, um, uh, the one that stands out, well, the ones that stand out as having had problematic PPPs are Portugal and to some extent Spain, particularly at the regional level. But also uh, there is one uh, example of a sort of rather costly, I would say almost failed uh, PPP program uh, with the government for the uh, building of uh, trams and trains by the government of uh, Victoria in Australia. Well, it's, uh, it's a fascinating subject and it's important, <laughs> also very complicated. So thank you, yeah. Teresa, for taking some time yeah. to, to help us understand uh, this, this issue. Thank you very much for uh, asking me. <laughs> you can download uh, the paper, Fiscal and Financial Issues for 21st Century Cities, Background and Overview by Teresa Termanassian and learn more about the project on 21st century governance on our website, brookings.edu slash citygovernance. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Wolscher. Plus thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abulahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.